0: Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message.
1: 19 years. 19 years after Voldemort's epic defeat at the Battle of Hogwarts, the epilogue of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows tells us that things are well with some of the characters that we've grown to love in the Harry Potter series. Harry and Ginny are married, they have three kids, two of which now go to Hogwarts where the beloved Neville Longbottom is now a professor of herbology. Ron and Hermione are married with kids. Draco Malfoy is married with a kid. Teddy Lupin's caught kissing a Weasley cousin. Ron's son, Albus, is anxious about what house he's going to be sorted into. But most importantly, most importantly, the final words of the Harry Potter series tell us this, the scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. That's how the book ends. All was well in the world of Harry Potter. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine, what if, what if the final words of that story were different? What if... Instead of saying, the scar had not pained Harry for 19 years, all is well, what if the last sentence of the last Harry Potter book said, and then Harry woke up in his bed under the staircase at 4 Privet Drive? And then Harry woke up in his bed under the staircase at 4 Privet Drive. What would happen? What would that do to the story? What what kind of... What would that alternate ending mean for Harry Potter? It completely change it, right? I mean, people, places, events, experiences, if it's all just an elaborate dream, if it's just a complex dream for Harry, the story changes. Changing the ending changes the story. Put differently, if we get the wrong ending, we get the wrong story. Now, that's not true just for Harry Potter. It's true for the Bible, too. See, we say it often here at Veritas because we believe it. The Bible is profound, it's beautiful, and it tells one true story. The Bible tells one true story from the opening pages of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament to the last pages of the book of Revelation in the New. And as most good stories do, the ending reveals the point of everything that's written before it. Meaning to understand the biblical story, you and I have to know how it ends. We have to get the right ending. And so the question for us tonight, the question that we're going to talk about is, how does the Bible end? Most of us would probably say heaven, right? But what is heaven? What's heaven like? What do we think about when we think about heaven? Now my guess is that it's hard not to think about some sort of luminous city up in the clouds with pearly gates and streets of gold. Right, that, that image has become a caricature of what heaven is and what it's like to many people in our culture, maybe even many of us here tonight. What is heaven? Well, it's the place that we go to when we die. What's it like? Well, most of what we'll do is float around in the sky forever as disembodied people somehow playing harps while jumping around on clouds. Elevator music is on a constant loop in the background, maybe church music if you're religious, Everyone can fly, and oh yeah, for some reason, there are fat, little, naked babies everywhere. Pure eternal bliss, right? Now, maybe this is surprising to you, but maybe it's not. Regardless, the Bible says nothing of that sort with respect to heaven. The Bible never says any of that about heaven. Heaven is never described like I just said in the Bible, ever, And so what does the Bible say about heaven? That's by far one of the most frequently asked questions that, that I've gotten in college ministry in my experience, probably most of our staff. And to be completely honest, the Bible doesn't say a lot. The Bible doesn't say a lot about heaven. It really doesn't. It's a question that we'd all love to have answered. And yet the reality is that the Bible spends very little time actually doing so. But it does say a little. And so what does it say? What do we know? That's what I want to talk about tonight. What does, the Bible, what does the Bible say about heaven? The first thing we need to know, the first thing that we need to know about that word heaven is that it doesn't mean what we think it means. See, when we say heaven, my guess, we usually mean the place, that, the place in the sky that we go when we die. When we say heaven, we think about the place that we go to in the sky when we die. Well, that's not what the Bible means, that's not how heaven is used in the Bible. Well how is it used? A couple things. Look at Genesis 1 verse one. It says this. You, you know it. "In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Now, now let's think for a second. What's this verb verse describing? Is it, is it describing some sort of supernatural place that, that God has created for us to go to when we die? Well, no. No, this Hebrew word here, it's, I know, dorky, it's shemayim. And while often we see in our translations that word translated as heaven or heavens, a far more basic and acceptable translation is sky. So literally, in Genesis 1-1, it's not about God creating a supernatural place called heaven and a physical place called earth. No, heavens literally means the sky above us. And so we could easily read this verse In the beginning, God created the skies and the earth. Skies upstairs, earth downstairs. Same thing in Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? See, David's not talking about a supernatural place. He's literally talking about the sky, the atmosphere above our heads. But that Hebrew word, shemaim, it also means something else. Hebrew authors use it sometimes as a metaphor, a metaphor to describe in, in kind of poetic terms God's transcendent authority over all things. So look at Psalm 113, picking up at verse four. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? Psalm 14, 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. One more, Psalm 33. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. So to say that God is above, that he looks down from heaven or the heavens, it's to metaphorically, it's to poetically make a claim about God's status and authority as king over all creation. It's not, it's not to suggest that God somehow lives up in the sky. That's not what it's doing. It's just a way for the Old Testament authors to talk about God's space. Heaven is God's royal domain. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Years ago, there's a, a radio program uh, asked several famous people what heaven was like. Um, and and they, they ask all these people and get all these responses, and the people doing these interviews, um, what they start to realize is that a few themes began emerging. Out of all these responses they're getting about what is heaven, what's it like, and, and there were three main responses, and, and they're this. The first was that everyone believed in heaven. Everyone they interviewed thought that heaven was real. The second, everyone interviewed assumed that someday they'd go to heaven, that they'd be there. And then three, not a single person, not a single person interviewed mentioned that God was in heaven. Not one. See, I think that tells us something about what we think about when when we think about heaven. But the Bible doesn't use heaven to describe the place that we go when we die. The Bible doesn't use heaven that way. It uses heaven to describe the place where God is reigning on his throne. The place where God is dwelling. God's presence is what makes heaven, heaven. Second thing. Second thing that we have to know about heaven is that the who is more important than the where. Where? So, so we often, the question kind of becomes, what, what's, what's heaven, what's it like, what will we be doing? Well, the Bible wants us to first fix our eyes on who heaven is about. So, so in the beginning, you're, you're familiar, the beginning of the story in Genesis, in the beginning, heaven and earth, they, they overlap. God's space and our space, they're united. They're united in the garden, in the garden of Eden. God and humanity, they dwell perfectly together, just as God intended. God partners with humanity. He, he commands them to rule and to cultivate, to, to participate with Him in, in building a, a beautiful and flourishing world. But you know what happens, right? The story goes sideways. God had a plan for the world, but Adam and Eve reject it in favor of themselves. They, they, they choose their own purposes over God. And so, what happens? Because of that, because of their rebellion, sin enters into the world. Sin enters into the story. And so now sin infiltrates every person. It infiltrates every community. It infiltrates all of creation. The Bible teaches that nothing escapes the infiltration of sin. And so Adam and Eve, what happens to them? They're they're banished from the garden, God and his holiness can no longer dwell in the presence of their sin. And so heaven and earth, what were once united, are now driven apart. They're driven apart. And thankfully, that's not the end of the story. See, God had a plan. He had a plan to eventually bring what had been driven apart back together again, to unite heaven and earth once again. How? Fast forward to the New Testament, Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite passages. It's a lot of verses, so hang with me. You're probably familiar with the passage. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, what John is telling us is that God became flesh in the person of Jesus. It's the scandal of the Christian story. God became flesh in the person of Jesus. And if heaven is the place where God dwells, then by implication, heaven came to earth in Jesus This is God's plan, to reunite the two. Heaven and earth were reunited again in Jesus. But not fully, not yet. Because though Jesus came to dwell with his people, what happens to him? Though he came to reunite heaven and earth, he's crucified. He's murdered on a cross. He died a death that he didn't deserve. But three days later, Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, and in his resurrection, he triumphs over sin and death, promising one day to right every wrong, to reunite heaven and earth, God's space and our space, yet again, when he returns to dwell with his people once and for all. Second to last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John. He writes about a vision that he has about this future, about this hope and he says this in verse three of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, I, I, want, you to, I want you to catch this because it's important. It's important. The biblical hope is not that men and women will die and go to heaven. The biblical story is not a story of humanity's ascent to God. Rather, it's the story of God coming to us in Jesus. The biblical hope is the descent of God. Heaven and earth being reunited again, just as it was in the beginning, in the garden. Now, that leads us to to our last point, at least for tonight, about heaven. And it's this. Heaven is and will be here on earth. Not out there, not in the sky, here on earth. Back to Revelation, fuller passage, one through five, Revelation 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. making everything new i am making everything new so john has this vision he has this vision and and he sees the first heaven and the first earth passing away and and a new heaven and a new earth he says take their place and he hears god declare he hears god promise he hears god proclaim from his throne i'm making everything new Now, that should raise a question. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is making everything new? Is God making all new things? Is he making all new things, or is he making everything that he's already made new? It's an important question. Throughout history, some have argued, some have made the claim that that one day when Jesus returns, this world will be no more. He's going to destroy it. He's going to annihilate it. In its place, a new world, one completely other to what we experience, what we have now is going to be created. But that doesn't fit the biblical storyline. See, the re- reuniting of heaven and earth, it's not a total recreation. It's a complete restoration. It's a restoration. Everything that God has made will be made new. New in what sense? New in what sense? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at Jesus' resurrection. resurrection. We need to look at Jesus' resurrection because Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of what's to come. Jesus' resurrection, in other words, points us to this new creation that John sees in Revelation 21. When Jesus walks out of the tomb three days after his death, he does so with a physical body, not as a ghost. Later we see him eating and drinking with his disciples. He says, look at the scars on my hands, look at the scars on my feet from, from the nails, from where the nails had pinned me to the cross. Jesus, after his resurrection, he walks and he talks, and, and the same body that went into the tomb is the same body that raises to life and walks out of it. So, so in one sense, the resurrected Jesus is the same, but, but in another, he's also different. How so? Well when he first appears to his disciples at least to some of them they they don't recognize him. They don't they don't recognize him. Now these aren't people that are strangers. These are people that have been around him the last several years of their lives. And now they see Jesus, resurrected Jesus and they don't know who he is at first. There's also a time in in John chapter 20, uh, we're told that the disciples are are all together in a room. Uh, We get a really interesting detail. They're they're in a room, they're hiding from the Jews, uh, the religious leaders of the day, and the detail that we get is that the door is locked. The door to the room that they're all standing inside is locked. Gives us a detail. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens? Jesus just appears. Jesus, all we're told is, boom, right in the middle of the room talking to him. Now what it doesn't say is that Jesus walked through the door or, or that one of the disciples went to the door and unlocked the door, opened the door and let Jesus in and closed the door and locked it again. No, it just says the door was locked and then all of a sudden Jesus' body is with them in the room. There are also other times where, where, where Jesus is, is in front of people and then suddenly he disappears after his resurrection. So, so the point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus' body is physical, but it's physical in a way that's clearly different. It's physical in a way that's clearly different. There's some ambiguity there. There's some mystery there. We don't know entirely what that means. We kind of have to live with that. But Jesus is simultaneously the same and different. And the Bible says that what's true of Jesus is going to be true for us and for all of creation when, when heaven and earth are reunited in his return. So the Apostle Paul, he's, he's kind of talking about this. He's reflecting on this future hope in Romans 8. We don't have time to look at all the verses. But, but he says this, is to paraphrase. He says that one day our world, one day this earth is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. Liberated from its bondage to decay because of sin that has entered into the world. But he also says, again, not yet. Not yet, because for now, heaven and earth don't fully overlap. God's space and our space, they're not completely united. And until then, Paul uses a metaphor, and he says, creation groans. Creation groans like a a woman in childbirth as it awaits its restoration. He says, we too, as human beings, we too groan as we eagerly await our, our future glory and the redemption of our bodies, which, by the way, includes our own resurrection, See, the Bible teaches us that in heaven we will have bodies. So, so the Bible, it points us to the future, but it's not a disembodied future in an ethereal, timeless heaven. No, the future that the Bible points us to is one with resurrected bodies, the renewal of our home, this earth, and dwelling with Jesus. That's the future that the Bible points us to. But what does that have to do with us right now? What does that have to do with right now? There's a scene in the movie Titanic, I know it was made before most of you, probably all of you, I'm old, was, was born, uh, were born, was born, were born. Uh, maybe you've seen it though, if not, I, I think you'll get the point. The scene is this, right? The, what's, what's the deal with the Titanic? It's the, the unsinkable ship. Well, it sinks, right? Uh, so, so in the movie, I know, harsh. <laughs> Uh, in the movie, right, the, the ship, uh, the unsinkable ship, what's it do? It hits the iceberg, right? It's going down. It's sinking. People, as they start to realize this, as they start to realize that, that the ship that couldn't sink has hit an iceberg, it has a hole in the hole, it's going down, uh, panic ensues, right? Panic ensues as people start to realize this ship is sinking. We're all probably going to die. And what's really interesting in this scene is that um, there are these musicians that throughout the movie would, would occasionally play instruments, a band for, for the guests on, on, on the ship. What's really interesting is all of this panic is ensuing, uh, one of the, the musicians, he grabs his violin and he starts playing. So literally the ship is sinking, it's going down and a musician grabs his violin and starts playing and the, the other bandmates are kind of looking around like, you crazy, but okay. And so they go and they grab their stuff. And so then you get this scene where, where these, I don't, know, I don't remember how many, these musicians, this band is playing as the boat is sinking. And, and as a viewer, you're kind of left sitting there thinking like, why on earth are they playing music? The boat is sinking, right? What's the point? The ship's going down. What's the purpose? Now, maybe some of you are are here tonight and you're thinking, all this heaven stuff, maybe it's new, maybe it's not new, but regardless, it's it's great, it's exciting, but you're wondering to yourself, what does this have to do with my life right now? Or Or maybe a little bit differently, if God is going to make everything new someday, then does right now really matter? If the reality is that the boat is just sinking God's going to make it new someday. Does right now really matter? Does this life really matter? Well, Jesus seems to think it does. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples on a hillside, and he's he's specifically talking to them about prayer. And he's teaching them how to pray, and he teaches them. he says this, among many things, he says, pray uh, like this. He says, pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray that more of heaven would invade more of earth and more of us. See, God's restoration of the world, it's not just a future event. It's happening right now. And Jesus says that God is calling each of us to be a part of it, to live in light of the end of the story, to being a part of furthering God's kingdom of love and justice and mercy. And so if that's true, if if God is calling us to live in light now of the end of the story, what does that look like? There's so many things that we could say, right? But, but some of the things that we see throughout the New Testament, just to give kind of a, a shotgun spray, what does it look like? It looks like going out to all nations, to all people, to share the good news of Jesus, the risen king of the entire world. It means for us to spread God's presence wherever we go. It means being part of of ruling and cultivating of partnering with God to build a beautiful and flourishing world and an Eden reboot to seek and further God's kingdom it's it's to bring our entire lives under the rule of the king it means viewing our bodies differently changing our behaviors see knowing the end it changes how we live our lives now Look, this is what Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, this is what he says in First Peter chapter four, picking up in verse seven. Peter writes, "The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling." See, what you believe about the end of the story affects how you live your life right now. And so the natural question coming out of that is, is are you living in light of God's story? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, are you living in light of God's story? Or are you living for some other story? Some other ending right now in college? October 20th, 1968, uh, Olympic Stadium in Mexico City. It's just beginning to get dark. Over an hour earlier, the winner of the Olympic Marathon had crossed the finish line. Thousands of people had had begun leaving the stadium. The race was over. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, sirens and whistles begin piercing the air. Attention shifts. It shifts to to the entrance of the stadium because limping through the gate was one lone runner from Tanzania, John Stephen Akwari. Earlier in the race, Akwari had taken a bad fall and now with a bandaged and bloodied nasty leg, he was hobbling around the last leg of the track. And as he came toward the finish line, the, the, the stadium and the crowd, it begins to get louder and louder and roaring and roaring. And, and when he finally finishes, the stadium goes nuts. Athletes flock him. Re- reporters surround him. Everyone wants to know. They ask, you're so badly hurt. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? And Akwari, he, he he looks at them and he says, because my country didn't send me 7,000 miles to start this race, they sent me here to finish it. They sent me here to finish it. As the music team comes back up, God is calling you, he's calling me to finish the race, to live in light of the end of the story, See, see, Jesus is inviting you into something far bigger, a story far greater than you and I could ever imagine. It's a story of a king returning to dwell with his people, a story of, of God's space and our space being reunited again forever. And in that space, all things will be made new. Everything sad will come untrue. Death will be replaced with life Our lives will be cleansed of corruption and weakness and sin. Dishonor and tears and mourning and pain. See, in many ways, the the end of the biblical story is really just the beginning. It's just the beginning of forever with God. But until then, until that day, you and I, we pray. Your kingdom come. Come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't just pray, we act. We live in light of the end, and as we do, we look to Jesus, the one who restores, the one who gives us hope. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, Please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, Follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.